Book Two, Part Three of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Two, Part Three, July Fourth to July Eighth, eighteen sixty-two. July 4th. Here I am, and still alive, having wakened but once in the night, and that only in consequence of Louis and Morgan crying, nothing more alarming than that. I ought to feel foolish, but I do not. I am glad I was prepared, even though there was no occasion for it. While I was taking my early bath, Lily came to the bathhouse and told me through the weather-boarding of another battle. "'Stonewall Jackson has surrounded McClellan completely, and victory is again ours. "'This is said to be the sixth battle he has fought in twenty days, and they say he has won them all. "'And the Seventh Regiment distinguished itself, and was presented with four cannon on the battlefield "'in acknowledgment of its gallant conduct. "'Gibbs belongs to the ragged, howling regiment that rushed on the field yelling like unchained devils, and spread a panic through the army, as the northern papers said, describing the Battle of Manassas. Oh, how I hope he has escaped! And they say, Palmerston has urged the recognition of the Confederacy and an armed intervention on our side. Would it not be glorious?' Oh, for peace, blessed peace, and our brothers once more. Palmerston is said to have painted Butler as the vilest oppressor, and having added he was ashamed to acknowledge him of Anglo-Saxon origin. Perhaps knowing the opinion entertained of him by foreign nations caused Butler to turn such a somersault, for a few days before his arrival here we saw a leading article in the leading Union paper of New Orleans threatening us with the arming of the slaves for our extermination if England interfered, in the same language almost as Butler used when here. Three days ago the same paper ridiculed the idea, and said such a brutal inhuman thing was never for a moment thought of, it was too absurd. And so the world goes. We all turn somersaults occasionally. And yet I would rather we would achieve our independence alone, if possible. It would be so much more glorious. And then I would hate to see England conquer the North, even if for our sake. My love for the old Union is still too great to be willing to see it humiliated. If England would just make Lincoln come to his senses, and put an end to all this confiscation which is sweeping over everything, make him agree to let us alone and behave himself, that will be quite enough. But what a task! If it were put to the vote to-morrow to return free and unmolested to the Union or stay out, I am sure Union would have the majority— but this way, to think we are to be sent to Fort Jackson and all the other prisons for expressing our ideas, however harmless, to have our houses burned over our heads, and all the prominent men hanged, who would be eager for it? Unless, indeed, it was to escape even the greater horrors of a war of extermination. July 5th think that since the twenty-eighth of may i have not walked three squares at a time for my only walks are to mrs bruno's 
It is enough to kill any one. I might as well be at Ship Island, where Butler has sentenced Mrs. Philip for laughing while the corpse of a federal officer was passing. At least that is to be the principal charge, though I hope for the sake of Butler's soul that he had better reasons. Shocking as her conduct was, she hardly deserved two years' close confinement in such a dreadful place as that, because she happened to have no sense of delicacy and no feeling." The darkest hour is just before the day. We have had the blackest night for almost three months, and I don't see the light yet. Better days are coming. I am getting skeptical, I fear me. I look forward to my future life with a shudder. This one cannot last long. I will be up and doing before many months are past. Doing what? Why, if all father left us is lost forever, if we are to be penniless as well as homeless, I'll work for my living. How, I wonder. I will teach. I know I am not capable, but I can do my best. I would rather die than be dependent. I would rather die than teach. There, now, you know how I feel. Teaching before dependence, death before teaching. My soul revolts from the drudgery. I never see a governess that my heart does not ache for her. I think of the nameless, numberless insults and trials she is forced to submit to, of the hopeless, thankless task that is imposed on her, to which she is expected to submit without a murmur, of all her griefs and agony shut up in her heart, and I cry heaven help a governess. My heart bleeds for them, and... One o'clock p.m. Thus far had I reached when news came that our forces were attacking the town and had already driven the pickets in. I am well now. We all rushed to make preparations instantly. I had just finished washing my hair before I commenced writing, and had it all streaming around me, but it did not take a minute to thrust it into a loose net. Then we each put on a fresh dress, except myself, as I preferred to have a linen cambric worn several times before, to a clean one not quite so nice, for that can do good service when washed. The excitement is intense. Mother is securing a few of Father's most valuable papers, Lily running around after the children, and waiting for Charlie, who cannot be found. Miriam, after securing all things needful, has gone downstairs to wait the issue, and I, dressed for instant flight with my running-bag tied to my waist and knapsack, bonnet, veil, etc. on the bed, occupy my last few moments at home in this profitable way. Nobody knows what it is. A regiment has been marched out to meet our troops, some say commanded by Van Dorn, which I doubt, the gunboats are preparing to second them. We hear the garrison drum and see people running, that is all. We don't know what is coming. I believe it will prove nothing after all. But the gunboat is drawn up so as to command our street here, the guns aimed up the street just below, and if a house falls, ours will be about the first. Well— this time next year we will know all of which we are now ignorant. That is one consolation. The house will either be down or standing then. 6 p.m. We have once more subsided. How foolish all this seems. 
Miriam and I laughed while preparing and laughed while unpacking. It is the only way to take such things, and we agree on that, as on most other subjects. They say the affair originated from half a dozen shots fired by some Federal soldiers through idleness, whereupon the pickets rushed in screaming Van Dorn was after them at the head of six thousand men. I have my reasons for doubting the story. It must have been something more than that to spread such a panic, for they certainly had time to ascertain the truth of the attack before they beat the long roll and sent out their troops, for if it had been Van Dorn he would have been on them before that. Whatever it was, I am glad of the excitement, for it gave me new life for several hours. I was really sick before. Oh, this life! When will it end? Evermore and forevermore shall we live in this suspense? I wish we were in the Sandwich Islands. July 7th. As we no longer have a minister, Mr. Gearlow having gone to Europe, and no papers, I am in danger of forgetting the days of the week, as well as those of the month but i am positive that yesterday was sunday because i heard the sunday school bells and friday i am sure was the fourth because i heard the national salute fired i must remember that to find my dates by well last night being sunday a son of captain hooper who died in the fort jackson fight having just come from new orleans stopped here on his way to jackson to tell us the news or rather to see Charlie, and told us afterwards. He says a boat from Mobile reached the city Saturday evening, and the captain told Mr. Lanoue that he brought an extra from the former place containing news of McClellan's surrender with his entire army, his being mortally wounded, and the instant departure of a French and English man-of-war from Hampton Roads with the news. That revived my spirits considerably, all except McClellan's being wounded. I could dispense with that. But if it were true, and if peace would follow, and the boys come home, oh, what bliss! I would die of joy as rapidly as I am pining away with suspense now, I am afraid. About ten o'clock, as we came up, Mother went to the window in the entry to tell the news to Mrs. Day, and while speaking saw a man creeping by under the window in the narrow little alley on the side of the house, evidently listening, for he had previously been standing in the shadow of a tree and left the street to be nearer. When Mother ran to give the alarm to Charlie, I looked down, and there the man was, looking up, as I could dimly see, for he crouched down in the shadow of the fence. Presently, stooping still, he ran fast towards the front of the house, making quite a noise in the long tangled grass. When he got near the pepper-bush, he drew himself up to his full height, paused a moment as though listening, and then walked quietly towards the front gate. By that time Charlie reached the front gallery above and called to him, asking what he wanted. Without answering, the man walked steadily out, closed the gate deliberately, then, suddenly remembering drunkenness would be the best excuse, gave a lurch towards the house, walked off perfectly straight in the moonlight, until seeing Dr. Day fastening his gate, he reeled again. That man was not drunk. 
Drunken men cannot run crouching, do not shut gates carefully after them, would have no inclination to creep in a dim little alley merely to creep out again. It may have been one of our detectives. Standing in the full moonlight, which was very bright, he certainly looked like a gentleman, for he was dressed in a handsome suit of black. He was no citizen. Form your own conclusions. Well, after all, he heard no treason. Let him play eavesdropper if he finds it consistent with his character as a gentleman. The captain who brought the extra from Mobile wished to have it reprinted, but it was instantly seized by a federal officer who carried it to Butler, who monopolized it, so that will never be heard of again. We must wait for other means of information. The young boy who told us reminds me very much of Jimmy. He is by no means so handsome, but yet there is something that recalls him, and his voice, though more childish, sounds like Jimmy's too. I had an opportunity of writing to Lydia by him, of which I gladly availed myself, and have just finished a really tremendous epistle. Wednesday, ninth July. Poor Miriam, poor Sarah, they are disgraced again. Last night we were all sitting on the balcony in the moonlight, singing as usual with our guitar. I have been so accustomed to hear Father say in the evening, "'Come, girls, where is my concert?' And he took so much pleasure in listening that I could not think singing in the balcony so very dreadful since he encouraged us in it. But last night changed all my ideas. We noticed Federals, both officers and soldiers, pass singly or by twos or threes at different times, but as we were not singing for their benefit and they were evidently attending to their own affairs, there was no necessity of noticing them at all. But about half-past nine, after we had sung two or three dozen others, we commenced Mary of Argyle. As the last word died away, while the chords were still vibrating, came a sound of clapping hands, in short. Down went every string of the guitar. Charlie cried, I told you so, and ordered an immediate retreat. Miriam objected as undignified, but renounced the guitar. Mother sprang to her feet and closed the front windows in an instant, whereupon, dignified or not, we all evacuated the gallery and fell back into the house. All this was done in a few minutes, and as quietly as possible, and while the gas was being turned off downstairs, Miriam and I flew upstairs. I confess I was mortified to death, very, very much ashamed, but we wanted to see the guilty party, for from below they were invisible. We stole out on the front balcony above, and in front of the house that used to be Gibbs's we beheld one of the culprits. At the sight of the creature my mortification vanished in intense compassion for his. He was standing under the tree, half in the moonlight, his hands in his pockets, looking at the extinction of light below, with the true state of affairs dawning on his astonished mind, and looking by no means satisfied with himself such an abashed creature. He looked just as though he had received a kick that, conscious of deserving, he dared not return. 
While he yet gazed on the house in silent amazement and consternation, hands still forlornly searching his pockets as though for a reason for our behavior, from under the dark shadows of the tree another slowly picked himself up from the ground, hope he was not knocked down by surprise, and joined the first. His hand sought his pockets, too, and, if possible, he looked more mortified than the other. After looking for some time at the house, satisfied that they had put an end to future singing from the gallery, they walked slowly away, turning back every now and then to be certain that it was a fact. If ever I saw two mortified, hangdog-looking men, they were these two as they took their way home. Was it not shocking? But they could not have meant it merely to be insulting, or they would have placed themselves in full view of us rather than out of sight under the trees. Perhaps they were thinking of their own homes instead of us. July 10th a proclamation is out announcing that any one talking about the war or present state of affairs will be summarily dealt with. Now, seems to me summarily is not exactly the word they mean, but it still has an imposing effect. What a sad state their affairs must be in if they can't bear comment. An officer arrived day before yesterday, bringing the surprising intelligence that McClellan had captured Richmond and 50,000 prisoners. That is the time they talked. But when we received yesterday confirmation of his being finally defeated by our troops, and the capture of his railroad train twelve miles in length, they forbid further mention of the subject. I wonder if they expect to be obeyed. What a stretch of tyranny! O oh, free America, you who uphold free people, free speech, free everything! What a foul blot of despotism rests on a once spotless name! A nation of brave men who wage war on women and lock them up in prisons for using their woman weapon, the tongue! A nation of free people who advocate despotism, a nation of brothers who bind the weaker one's hand and foot and scourge them with military tyrants and other free brotherly institutions. What a picture! Who would not be an American? One consolation is that this proclamation and the extraordinary care they take to suppress all news, except what they themselves manufacture, proves me that our cause is prospering more than they like us to know. I do believe day is about to break. If our troops are determined to burn our houses over our heads to spite the Yankees, I wish they would hurry and have it over at once. Ten regiments of infantry are stationed at Camp Moore, and Scott's cavalry was expected at Greenwell yesterday, both preparing for an attack on Baton Rouge. If we must be beggars, let it come at once. I can't endure this suspense. End of Book Two, Part Three